Welcome to the Centre for Army Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Dean Cannon, heading up the British Army's Centre of Excellence for Leadership. In this episode, I talk to Arsenal and England football legend, Tony Adams. Tony played football at the highest levels of the game, playing for and captaining both Arsenal and England before moving on to have a diverse coaching and managing career around the world. But mixed in amongst the highs of his playing and managing careers were the lows of alcohol addiction and mental health struggles. Once described by Arsenal manager George Graham as my Sergeant Major on the pitch at the age of only 21, I started by asking Tony to reflect on his reputation as a leader both on the pitch and off it. 40 years ago, I made my debut at the Arsenal yesterday, and uh, I didn't know none of this stuff. I'm talking to you now as a 57-year-old man that's got some insight uh, on this behaviour and what I was doing as a young man. I never looked at it. I was completely unconscious to my thoughts and feelings because I was winning a lot, and they were going, oh, you're good. So I thought it was the right way to behave. So I turned into uh, this character that, on the football pitch, was a bit of a bully. It was my way on a highway. You know, I wanted success. I wanted to be good. I was getting pats on the back. So that was my style of leadership in my early days as a player. And I got good results in respect of winning stuff, winning games. And as a person, you know, I felt that I was doing the right thing. I was the leader. People looked at me and said, wow, that guy. I thought that was the way to behave. But off the pitch, Complete mess, full of fear, couldn't do relationship, couldn't talk to people. There was this different character running alongside that was not being nurtured. Yeah. So you were very bullish in, in the matches as captain. Was that a bullish style of leadership of your own team or was it just bullish focused against the other team? I wanted to win and the style that I was playing physically I suppose mentally around that time as well was a, I want, if you was out of position, I'd want you back in. Come on, because I knew the result would be that we'd win. But for instance, I've got to give the alternative because I got clean and sober in 96 and I started to do things differently because I started to emotionally grow up and to look at myself internally. So once you do that, you can recognise it in other people. And I realized what I'd been doing to other people in my drive for success and my leadership style was actually detrimental to a lot of mental health of people around me, you know, phoning them up. <laughs> you know, you're not going home to your wife. You know, you're staying out with me all night. You know what I mean? You, you stay here. You say, no, no, I've got a family and I've got kids and I want to go home. You know, no, 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 no. Come on. We're going out on the, on the, on the drink. You know, we, we're going. And I was like that onto the football pitch because I was full of insecurity. I surrounded myself with people that were worse than me to prop myself up. You know, I married a, a, a woman at the start. She took cocaine, but she very quickly progressed onto crack cocaine. She propped me up. At least I'm not as bad as you. You know, I could do all this drinking, all this bad behavior, um, Chelmsford prison, blackouts. But look at her. You know, she's worse than me. It was the same with you in football. You know, if someone made a mistake, I'd go over to them and pat them on the back. But what I was really saying is, have a look, this person's made a mistake. I'm brilliant because I've gone over there and I've patted him on the back. You know, it's when, when Gareth missed the penalty in 96, dragging Gareth round the Wembley Stadium, pointing, you know, go on, we all love Gareth. You know, everyone from the outside is looking, kind of going, oh, what a captain, what a man. 
That's not leadership. For me, I can see that today. That's a man that's trying to prop himself up emotionally and mentally. You know, so I'm not going to put myself too down here because there is good intentions in there as well. And I was lacking in knowledge. And I think my style of leadership completely changed. Yeah. Who were the people around you in the early years of football who you can now recognise were the really strong leaders or people that you then started to try to emulate or you remember now? Yeah, all the ones I avoided. <laughs> people come to mind, like Martin Keogh. You know, Martin was a fully focused, educated young man. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd try to get him worse than me and, and he weren't having it, you know, and mm. he'd avoid me. And he said, well, what are you doing? Why are you going out? Lee Dixon comes to mind as well. People that have picked up my behaviour along the journey. So I did actually avoid all those kind of people. And it's really evident my, my illness was gathering pace, shall we say, and uh, we won the league in 91, then we become a very good cup team. And I think I could get up for a certain amount of games a season, but I couldn't play week in, week out. It was taking its time. So I wasn't playing as many games. We've become a very good cup team, weirdly. We won the cup double in 92-93 with uh, the League Cup and the FA Cup. Because I could get up for the six games a year, you know, white knuckle it, we call it in the trade, focusing on football. Because football was my first love. It's my first drug, you know, completely obsessed with it. That was my go-to. That suppressed all my thoughts and feelings. But alcohol took over that. Yeah. And don't forget, the majority of the industry at that time, we had a culture of drinking. So a lot of my drinking and, and behaviour got covered up because a lot of people were drinking to excess as well. So they didn't realise that I had a, a darts club on a Monday and, a, and having eight pints of lager or whatever it is. And then we played snooker on a Thursday night. You're not supposed to go out 48 hours before a match, but I was playing snooker and having eight pints of Guinness on a Thursday night. But I'm not drinking Guinness. I'm playing snooker. So it's my mm. justification. You know, I've got darts. I've got the Tuesday club taking the Wednesday off. All of a sudden, you're getting smashed after games all day Sunday trolling into work, all of a sudden it's catching you up. Holidays, injuries, smashed again. So over the course of 10, 11 years of drinking, I completely changed. But when there was a common goal to work towards and we were getting success, it was tolerated. Yeah. Uh, Euro Championship in 88, okay? So I'm a young man and we've got knocked out of the competition against the Dutch, but we've got one more game, but all the lads have gone out, just got absolutely smashed. I've weeded the bed. And I've come to the breakfast room in the morning and all the lads are taking a piss out of me. They're like, oh, pee, 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 because the chambermaids come in and kind of looked at the bed. So I brushed it off and it was a joke and I don't blame them and I don't blame the team. But, it, God, my God, I never resolved that humiliation. Mm. They all kind of took the piss out of me. It wasn't a, a dumb thing to actually recognise it or even to pull it up. Yeah. You know, like I said, when I went into, uh, I didn't say, but when I went into prison in 1990, there was no education. I went in there because I got in a car straight across an A road, 80 miles an hour, four times over the legal limit, smashed out my head, hit a lamppost, put my car straight into someone's house. Luckily, I put my seatbelt on. First time I ever done, so someone was looking after me then, but put my seatbelt on, saved my life, got out of the car, went to prison because of that. And rightly so, I was out of control for a length of a football pitch. Yeah. <laughs> a pair of flip flops, you know, Bermuda shorts. Mm. This is not kind of, 
laughable stuff, you know, and you do time for it. And the insanity of this illness is when I came out, I want to say weeks, but it was probably days, I was drink driving again. You know, that mm. is insanity. Yeah. In your books and the like, you take a huge amount of responsibility for all of these things that happened yourself. You absolutely accept that it was your doing. But do you think because everyone knew about it in the game, in the clubs, there was a lack of leadership somewhere that allowed you to carry on, didn't grip you and say, this needs to stop? 100%. I think because we were successful. Uh, I, th I do believe if, if I wasn't a good player, uh, I would have been out. Uh, the majority of players, even today, to be honest with you, I mean, industry in particular, you know, if you've got a drink problem, you're out. I do believe that the leadership at that moment in time, from top to bottom, and some of them were drinkers themselves, you know, there was a justification. There was a, we're getting success, you know, or we won the European Cup Winners' Cup, create a champagne coming there, you know. Yeah. So I don't blame them. You know, there's no blame attached to it. It's just on self-reflection with time. And luckily, I've got redemption and I've got another recovery side of me that I can point back and kind of go, actually, it made me who I am today. And I can reflect upon them leaders. And if I'm ever a leader again, then I can recognize it in other people and go, hmm, hold on, son. You know, and I've had situations in club management that I've recognized it in certain players. And I've gone, mm, there you go, there's the number. Yeah. Do you need some help here? You know, because it saved my life, you know. You went on beyond Arsenal to play for England six, six <laughs> times. I don't know if you noticed that you were born in 66 and you played 66 matches yeah. for uh, England. World Cup winning <laughs> squad was last in 1966. This kind of pressure that comes with being the captain of the nation's most high-profile team. Mm. What was the leadership demands on you captaining England versus Arsenal? Was it Entirely different oh, level or England, similar? England, you, there's not a feeling like it. You know, when I led my country out, uh, in the Euros in 96, it, it's another level. It's an absolute another level. It's, uh, I was so proud. You know, I love Arsenal to bits and I played for them and I lifted lots of trophies for them and they've kindly put a statue up, but there's nothing like leading your country out. And then you intensify it by the pressure that that brings and the responsibilities that that brings. But I always remember Graham Taylor, England manager, 94, and he used to do these bonding sessions with the guys and, and get comedians in and uh, all take us to the theatre, to the West End, and he didn't realise that he had, a, I suppose, an active alcoholic as captain. He obviously respected me as a player and, and what I achieved, and I was his man, and he, he showed faith in me as a player to select me and gave me the confidence but uh, I, I got drunk a few times on those evenings and uh, once kicked the door into the hotel room and he came in in the morning and just looked completely amazed. I can see his face to this day, you know, and I was in the shower, you know, like nothing had happened. He said, look, I, I can't protect you. This comes out in the media. Uh, I can't protect you. You're out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, what have I done? Because I had a huge amount of blackouts in those days as well. Through my illness, you know, I didn't even realise I'd kicked the door in and stuff. But uh, I'd, I'd been a complete mess. And, and But Graham wasn't, uh, um, you know, I could see he was a man of, of principles and I admired him a great deal. At the time, I probably didn't like him because he was calling me out. Mm. 
often, I'll probably find ways to belittle him or take the mickey out of him or I'm very comfortable going back to George Graham who was very loving and accepting of my behaviour. So I gravitated towards the people that liked me, funny enough. And when I became captain and, and Terry Venables obviously didn't know me intimately, he knew the style of play and the man that I was and we came from the same part of town. So he knew me as a, as a leader on the pitch, the success I had. Didn't really know about the levels of drinking. And, and I remember going to Hong Kong before the tournament, the famous dentist chair, when Gaza's gone out. I was, I was in a period of white-knuckling it because I'd crossed the line at that point and I knew if I'd taken a drink, I wasn't coming back. I didn't know where it, it was going to go. And uh, I, I, I was frightened, really frightened. And, and, and I locked myself in the hotel room, on the 15th floor we were. And I locked it and I shook all night. And uh, I, I always remember in the mornings going round, the, knocking on their doors in the morning, the players that have been out to the dentist chairs. And I, I've kind of sat in there and I'm white knuckling it all day. All night. But I was happy. I, I wanted to go training. I yeah. wanted to be on the train because I didn't have to think about boozing yeah. and, and stuff. But listen, I was at my rock bottom in those days. And when I got the captaincy, I was mentally and emotionally not well, yeah. you know. And after Gareth missed the penalty, I went on a 44-day bender. Um, then my last drink was a pint of Guinness and the brandy in the Guinness. And it was 5 o'clock on Friday, the 16th of August, 1996. I started to cry. Floods of tears and uh, something inside of me shifted and I just went, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. I was just sick and tired and um, finally admitted to myself that I needed help. And I always get emotional at this point. And, uh, yeah, it's a very pivotal moment. And then you come to life. So when I was England and sober, I'm going to the World Cup in 98. I'm reading book after book after book. I've, I've started to learn the piano. My world's opened up. You know, got French players, so I'm thinking, oh, well, I might meet them halfway. I'll learn, learn a bit of French from you, understanding, you know. One of the guys has got a bereavement in his family. I'm asking him how he is today, you know. Mm. Do you want to train or not? You know, you might, listen, have a day off if, if you're not right. You know, the man two years before that, we're going, I'm not interested in what you've done at home. I don't really care. We need a win today. Yeah. You know, that was the man that I was. Yeah. I wasn't caring about him. But I realised, actually, if they're okay in a good place, you're going to get the best out of that person. You know, you're going to get the best out of that lad that, you know. Yeah. And I always give this example, where the change in me and the change of, of style of person that I was. Six weeks into my recovery, Arsene Wenger came in and uh, his mum and dad had a pub in Strasbourg when he was a kid and he saw alcohol change people. And we really bonded spiritually and we used to meeting after meeting and realization after realization you know it was a beautiful friendship for six years and uh, i really value that but i, I got injured in 97 98 season so he'd only been there a year arson and uh I, I sat down with him and, and he said to me you know why don't you take three weeks off and i went we, we've got blackburn at the weekend mm. you know we, we need to win but if i'm not playing we're not going to win he said, well, I'd rather play someone that's fit than you, Tony, to be completely honest. Whoa, gee, what? No, a, a half-fit me is going to be better than any player you've got. Anyway, he said to me, why don't you have a complete week rest and then do rehab for a week and then weeks training, back in the team, three weeks, go for it. I went, okay. 
I went to the south of France for the week, you know, mm. and I sat on the beach and, and like being kind to myself. And it's a part of self-love as well, you know. I'm walking up mountains and cycling and, and it was really therapeutic. And I came back, did a week's training. We went on and won the double that year. You know, I come back fitter and stronger mentally, emotionally, physically than ever before, you know, and mm. I'd had the rest off. I went, wow, you know, something like that is absolutely revolutionary for, yeah. for, for this new sober captain, Tony Adams, yeah. an England captain, an Arsenal captain, yeah. yeah. So in Addicted, your first book, there's a huge amount about introverting your thoughts, being self-reflective. It sounds like you're talking about, in a way, leading yourself out of a moment more mm. than anyone imposing uh, an intervention on you to, yeah. to force it. Yeah. You've asked the question a couple of times now about people around you. People, could they have changed you? Could you have done that? Um, some of them enabled me and accepted it. Some of them did stand up. I ignored. So could they have intervened all the time? I believe, I suppose, that it, it's not until it comes from self, then it, it comes from within you have a paradigm shift, whatever en enables you to do that. My experience, again, is regards to I couldn't do it for my dad, my mum, you know. When I went down to prison and I was in the dock and I went down and I saw him before I got carted away, you know, they're in floods of tears, my mum and dad. I inflicted so much pain in them. I was in prison. They were the one with the news of the world and the son at the, at the doorstep, you know, bringing shame on the family, you know. Didn't want to cause them that pain, but I didn't know what to do or how to mm. do it. And I had another six years of drinking. You know, my dad stood in my kitchen and he said, son, you're a drunk. You're drinking with all those algarlics. You know, you, you're a drunk. You know, so he mm. didn't understand what I was going through. So how could I, you know, to answer your question, I, I think until it comes from within, I don't think you can change personally. But when I kind of broke down and internally recognised actually Game's up, yeah. you know, because I didn't want to be on the planet. I was 29 years of age and it was too painful. It was too painful. I didn't have the tools to live in this world emotionally and mentally. Yeah. What do you notice when you look back about the, the difference in your style as captain beyond recovery versus all the years prior? You know, I was very closed in my style of leadership. And, and you know, there was... Um, a couple of players that were, were late getting into training, you know what London traffic can be like at times. And, and I went to Arsenal and I said, look, these players, you've got to get me in on time. You know, we've got to be disciplined. We've got to have structure. And uh, he went, oh, maybe we should uh, put training time back so they can get in on time. I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> what, what is that philosophy doing? What is that about? He said, well, we need them, don't we? I said, yeah, but kickoffs at three o'clock on a Saturday. They ain't gonna be. He said yes, but it's not three o'clock on a Saturday, and there is a traffic problem in in London, and they can't get in now and again. They don't get in on time. Wouldn't it be better if we just made it eleven o'clock so they got in? Now, if they didn't get in for eleven o'clock, then we might have issues. Really simple stuff, but I was, I was like, I couldn't see the wood for the trees, so I I kind of adapted, you know, and became more open. Yeah. I suppose what I'm saying is two ways to skin a cat, uh, but there was one way that was in the early days very uh, mentally and emotionally damaging. Yeah. 
You've mentioned Arsene Wenger a couple of times. Once you finished playing, you set off on an extraordinary round the world managing and coaching yourself between the UK, Netherlands, Azerbaijan, China, Spain. What did you change about how you were leading teams as a coach and a manager versus when you were playing? Well, I've always tried to stay open, you know, and learn and and not control the destiny. Just take a day at a time and a situation at a time. You know, I've seen it done out there. Players going on and on and on. And there's so much that I've neglected through playing football, uh, travel, for instance, but actually seeing places, you know, I was when we played uh, Spartak Moscow, you know, we're 20 minutes from Red Square. We didn't see it, you know, hotel rooms, stadiums, fly back home, you know. So I wanted to experience the world. So I retired on my terms, first and foremost. And, and the Arsenal fans wanted me to do another year, another year. And I was like, no, 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 I'm done. I'm done physically, emotionally, mentally. I need to stand away and, and learn. So I went back to school, Brunel did the theory stuff, which buzzing to get going. And then I wanted to travel, you know, I went to Holland to learn how to be a coach. Just been having a lot of fun, a lot of learning, a lot of growing, you know, and getting in different situations, different cultures, you know, China, Azerbaijan, different ways of leading people, different ways of following people, different way of being in society, respect. With my principles that I've got today, and I've got a, a conscience, what I never had before. You know, I sit and reflect and meditate and I take healthy decisions. And I've every single one, I'm proud of every club that I've been involved in, you know, and football for me, it Mm. don't seem to be my destiny. The stuff that I've done off the pitch uh, and away from the football arena, it's taken over my life. You know, 23 years now, Sporting Chance. I've got a new company, Six Addiction. Uh, new charity, I'd be 10,000 days without a drink or a drug, which is leadership. There you go. You know, not taking a, a drink or drug for 10,000 days and uh, six addictions for people that can't afford uh, addiction recovery services. So that comes out in the new year. I've got a, um, I've got business around mental health and addiction issues, network of counsellors across the globe. Um, I'm doing a bit of a sales pitch here, but, I don't, but it seems to be my path you know, and I've kind of tried to dismiss it all these years and get on with my football career and this. And I, and it's been tickling at the back of my brain. Every time I go in the football direction, I usually, something comes up and kind of goes, no, get back there. You need to do that. You know, there's a person there, you know, and uh, a really great pal of mine eight months ago reached out for help. He went into recovery and now he's doing great. You know, mm. that that's the stuff that really touches me today you know uh a a year ago uh, i'd uh well i didn't go to heart attack my main artery was 99 percent closed and uh luckily i had a good uh, doctor uh, at the club i was in uh, gabala in azerbaijan at the time and he did me blood pressure it was through the roof he said you need to go to the hospital i said well after the game he went no 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 no. you need to go right now uh and i luckily got in there and done as i was told the doctor said, you are lucky, man. And I was crying on the slab and I'm kind of going, no, I'm not, I don't feel particularly lucky. He said, you're a very young man. We'd put a couple of stents in, you know, but mm. you are a lucky man. Look at this. And he showed me on the screen and it was like my main artery was white, no blood going through it. And he said, oh, any day you're gone. 
<laughs> Thanks. And on the back of that, I had huge PTSD. You know what I mean? I was like, a year after that, I was frightened to go out, frightened to like, really close down. I was just scared of everything. I didn't want to die. You know, at, at 29, I didn't want to live. At 49, I didn't want to die. Mm. And I'm like, whoa, geez, this is so scary. I was going to I was living in my doctor's you know, surgery. I was like, oh, please tell me what to do. You know? And I, every holiday that I booked, I made sure the hospital was right next door. It was really mm. psychologically, I had a real mental breakdown. It was scary. It was a scary place because there was nothing actually wrong with me at that stage. You know, going, you're okay. And I'm like, every twinge I was getting in my chest, I'm going, oh no, I've got something wrong with me. And that, that took me a good while to get over. Yeah, yeah it was a very, very difficult period. Yeah. You're actually very humble about your impact on the wider provision of mental health recovery services because you're covering a, a huge spectrum now from where you started out helping sports people like yourself, setting up sporting chants right now through to a full range of fully accessible services for anyone who needs them. Do you view yourself as a leader in the field? I'd like to think I'm humble. But obviously, I am the head figure, in effect, of these companies, of these charities. That's my role. But I, I'm no better, no worse than any other human being. You know, uh, the, the thing for me that I have to get away from, because ego kicks in, and I had always an inferiority, superiority complex going on. It's rife within the addicts. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm, you know, I'm proving myself. You know, in my football career, go for it, mate. You know, where, where, way to go. And in my personal life, what is all that about? You know, your mates and stuff, you know, I know because I do this, I'm better than you. It makes me feel better. Yeah. Self-esteem we're talking about now, really. So I have to be careful once you start talking about you're a leader in this field. I, I like that other people to maybe label that. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. You know, for me, I'm doing the next right thing. Yeah. Your stories of recovery, which are on the Sporting Chance website, people who have had similar experiences to you coming forward and telling their stories. Mm. And I related it to listening to your introduction to that podcast series where you were talking about having to have a, some sort of mobile therapy tapes that you would listen to and even getting to a point where you had to fly somewhere to go to an mm. AA meeting mm. just to stay on track. Mm. This is the, the modern equivalent of mobile therapy for people, I would imagine. I always say, my therapist, when I was broken, when I was ready, my mother-in-law gave me a number and I reached out for help, you know, and I rang him up and I always say that he saved my life. It's the second time I got emotional when, when I'm talking about that. And my mother-in-law giving me the number. And the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous gave me a life taught me how to live in this world. For addicts, it's the best solution uh, on 12 steps and fellowship groups. So we get connection and they are worldwide. In particular, AI is worldwide, but there wasn't one in Azerbaijan. So I set one up um, in their language now, actually, there was a lady that, that used to come and uh, um, she's taken it away, and, and she's got a meeting every day of the week now. So that that you know that's 2016. That's eight years ago now. And and I had to like you say get on the plane, go to Istanbul where there is meetings, and uh, yeah, and and I had to check in in that respect. But I used to listen to tapes and listen to shares and podcast. Podcast is the equivalent of that. And 
Uh, and that's the idea that came to me about, you know, telling people's stories. Because even AI, it started one person talking to another person about their stuff, about their stories. I always say, you, you know, if you can look around to listen, you kind of go, oh, actually, that's the way that they dealt with that. I'll add that because people don't own knowledge, mm. you know, it's to be given away, yeah. you know, so you can pick up a load of stuff. When I'm reflecting, because you can forget, you can, ref- I can forget how bad it was, you know, and, and, you know, I'm a little bit down the road, a bit more kind of recovery inside of me. Um, sober time, I know how to deal with situations that used to baffle me. And you can pass it on to the next people that come through, but what they can pass on to you is their story. And you go, ah, yeah, I was like that, exactly like that. Yeah. For instance, when I got clean and sober, I didn't know who I was. I, I could play, you know, play football and I know how to get drunk. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know if I liked the opera or, the, or this or that. Or, you know, I stood in the pub and got smashed. You know, that's what I did. So the world opened up to me and I had to learn about me, warts and all. Yeah. Are there paths now that you see ahead of you that are completely new, completely different, that you still want to follow that might be another round of development in Tony Adams? You know, I get a million ideas a day. And I have to let a lot of this stuff go. Mm-hmm. Um, some would say <laughs> I'm doing quite a bit already, you know, and yeah. I might have to rein it in. I've had <laughs> spoke to my my mentor, my man, about this, and he said, "You're a patron of six charities, Tony, and you want to go and what do you want to do now? Do you want to go to managing Iran? Yeah, great idea. Yeah, <laughs> what, good idea. Uh, I'm not going. <laughs> uh, so." Is there something out there? I've done quite a bit. I think Six Addiction is my finale in that world. Um, I've got a load of experience that I've passed on to people. I'm going to get a lot of people into recovery, which is my aim, um, and save a lot of lives, which is, you know, it's what it's all about at a time for me today. So I remain open, though. But I've got to look after myself as well because there's not enough time. In mm. all of a sudden, you, you're going around the world, and my heart episode reminds me of actually, you're not as young as you once was, and maybe you need some funnier as well. But if someone comes forward and says, "Look, I want you to be manager, uh, or coach, or sports director, or president of." A club in Iran, yeah. <laughs> and it seems to be honest with you, everything's added up. Then I'll go, mm. but the likelihood I'm not going to go there at this moment in time. So I remain open and I still work a program of recovery because I know that I've got to keep mentally and emotionally well to be able to handle anything. And I don't know what the future mm. we, don't, we none of us know. Um, I try and live in today, yeah. It's one thing, because the book was so successful and a lot of people read it and identified with the stuff that I'd gone through and Addicted and Sober were very well received. Even now I get emails and people going, oh, I've read the book and I've not had a drink for two years or three years or three months. And, and that's really heartwarming. So I think there might be another medium out there. I'm not talking documentary. I've done documentary. I did Drunk and Dry in 2002, which, which kind of did it. I've done it. But there might be somewhere, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a more visual thing that I'm talking kind of a, a one-off that, uh, that I might need to do. But I don't know. I don't know. Have you been able to 
pin down through your self-reflection one real leadership character trait, a word or a phrase or something that you say to people, you know, that's the real thing you need to, if you're going to be good at looking after other people, leading them, what is it, the one thing you should? You've got to keep getting up. You know, I've failed so many times. So many times. It's a part of success. It's failure. I learned more from every one of my failures than my successes. You know, losing the cup against Luton in 1988, you know, it spurred me on to win the league in 89. You know, the people throwing mud at me, this one and the other, your behaviour is unacceptable. You know, yeah. trying to prove people wrong was massive, massive. I've got this driving determination within to keep going. Yeah. And I think, you know, when even in the cells and I was, I was oblivious to, to why I was even in there, you know, no, no knowledge of emotions and mentors. There was something inside of me that went, keep going, keep going. There you go. So I think this has been fascinating. We could draw out this podcast for uh, hours and hours, I'm sure. <laughs> but probably three questions to, to round off. Uh, first one is one of the questions that everyone wants to know, which is how do you feel about your performance in the 3-1 <laughs> defeat by Wimbledon in <laughs> December 1987 when uh, you know Vinnie James just nicked it's that completely one. gone from my head. Is I can't really? remember it at all. <laughs> it might just be me that's uh, me and all the rest of the AFC Wimbledon fans listening to the podcast, of which I'm sure there are a thousand. Um, but actually, it was around about this time last year when you proved you're a man of many more talents as well. Mm. And the real question that all Cal podcast listeners really want to know is what's harder to lead? Is it the England football team or is it? A tango with Cacho on Strictly Come Dancing. Uh, well, it's Cacho, obviously. Obviously, it was really tough. Really tough to get out of your comfort zone. I didn't realise it was going to be as tough as it, as it was, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally. Wow, you know, I, it's like, why have you done this? What are you doing to yourself, you know? I've never danced before in my life. Absolutely never danced before. This is what I've got, vanity. They sent a lovely lady to come and um, kind of not audition, but to to kind of get me in, I suppose. So I met her and, and she took me for a little dance and she said, oh, you've got great hips. Oh, you're going to be great on it. And I went straight to vanity. I went, oh, you think so? She said, yeah, you'll be okay. You'll be all right. You ain't going to make an idiot of yourself. You'll be all right. And I kind of went, I went, okay. And then mental health stuff, yeah, I'll get out there and I'll give my message and, you know, don't suffer in silence and I'll get the 11 million viewers. You know, there's a big audience here. Yeah, I can do this. You know, I've meditated on it, asked me people, asked me mentor, you know. Yeah. He actually said, what are you doing? <laughs> it was a bit like the Iran thing. <laughs> what? No, don't do it. And then, you know, the sweet Katia, you know, Tried our best, <laughs> and uh, we, we, you know, we we clashed after clash after clash. She's a wonderful, wonderful lady, and a beautiful human being. And because I'm not good enough, I think it was so good for me. You know, when I was a kid, if I didn't do something well, I didn't do it. You know, I threw it away. It's like well, that's why I gravitated towards football because I was good at it. Mm. So as you go full circle, and you're 56 years of age, and you kind of go, okay, never danced before in my life. And thrown out there, I tell you, it's 90 seconds, not 90 minutes, 90 seconds of absolute hell. <laughs> Beforehand, I can't breathe. My lips are sticking together. I can't speak. 
because I'm really buzzing, hour of warm up for a football match. So I get myself going. I'm marching up and down. I'm I'm heading the ball and stuff. You know, I'm really motivated. I'm getting. But with dance, you has to be. You have to be calm. You have to be concentrated in in your in your step. It was absolutely terrifying. And then you get voted to the next week, and you've got to go through the whole lot again. <laughs> you meet at seven seven o'clock a.m. on a Monday morning, and you kind of go, "Gee, here we go again. Another week of hell. Another routine. Another dance." And then you're petrified at the weekend again. <laughs> but I tell you what, on the back of that, all said and done, you know, I've met a beautiful human being in Katia. And uh, I definitely grew emotionally. But I can see today it's a real strength, my vulnerability, my sensitivity. They're beautiful traits. They are beautiful that need to be honoured. Yeah. It's a real strength. And I'm able to do that today. Thank you. God, I'm able to cry today. Yeah. I never cried. 29, I've never cried in my life. You know, men don't cry. You know, didn't do it, but I was there on my hands and knees going help, yeah. and, and I'm crying now. You know what I mean? You a podcast about <laughs> leadership, and the man's cried three times. It's okay. That leads us really nicely onto my last question, which I'll, I'll ask in two bits. So I'm cheating and asking two. Really, looking back over all of it, is there one bit of advice on leadership or leading yourself that you would give a young? Tony is the first bit, and then second, would you change the path of how it's gone given where it's got you to? Well, I'd do that first because I know I don't want to change anything because it's all the hurt, all the pain, all everything. It's got me to where I am today, and I'm really pleased with where I am today. So that kind of answers the second bit. With the advice I can do is look after your side of the street. Really, you've just got to look after your own thoughts and feelings, and uh, and make sure that you're well today. And and by looking after me, hopefully I won't be a dick today. You know what I mean? Yeah, my wife says it all the time. Just try not to be a dick today, time. And that I opened up this podcast and you asked me about leadership and I said, I don't know. I'm not really sure. And I think there's a real power in that. And I think if you can remain open mm -hmm. in this world, then that's my advice. Tony, great bit of advice to finish off with. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you in. Thank you for telling us about your journey and very best of luck with all of your work in the future especially on the mental health stuff but also in whatever else you decide to allow yourself to go and do as well really appreciate it cheers god bless you i was taken by tony's ability to reflect on his behaviors to dissect his approaches to leadership and how they've evolved over his career his frankness in respect of his relationship with alcohol and its impact on how he led others, both on and off the pitch, is a stark lesson in self-awareness. And his ongoing introspection, born from a desire to constantly improve, is an excellent example of how resilience and a willingness to always learn and improve can deliver remarkable results in someone's leadership development. His transition to leading in a very different field, across the provision of mental health and addiction support, and his passion for helping others by using his own experiences, is admirable. And it demonstrates that most leadership styles, skills and behaviours can be learnt and are transferable across entirely different environments. He emphasised the importance of the need to look after yourself during periods of high stress and that leading yourself first is fundamental to your ability to keep performing at your best for the good of the team. Finally, Tony left us with the idea that the most learning happens through experiencing failure and that continuing to get back up after it 
is what has kept him moving forward on his leadership journey. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please share it with colleagues and friends and add your thoughts to the debate on social media. For more information on British Army leadership or to get in touch with the team, search for the Centre for Army Leadership website or find us on all your main social media platforms.